0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Converse Podcast, Episode 3.2, Hammurabi, the Lawgiver. In our last episode, we discussed the fall of the Akkadian Empire and its aftermath, the rise and fall of the last Sumerian dynasty, the arrival and eventual ascendancy of the Amorites in Mesopotamia, and of the rise of the upstart city and later minor kingdom of Babylon. And as we mentioned in our previous episode, Babylon was surrounded by expansive and in some cases hostile neighbors, always eyeing for weakness in order to gain more territory and wealth for themselves. Before we start the episode, I'd like to mention that unlike Sargon, from whose time we have almost no surviving sources, the information we have regarding Hammurabi's ancestors, background, and reign are better known to us. A great part of that is an unintentional result of an act of destruction ordered by Hammurabi himself. When the palace of Mary was burned down during Hammurabi's sack of the city, thousands of clay tablets that were kept in the city's palace archive were buried and preserved under its ruins. And the fact that Mary never recovered from this sack helped this preservation even further. Thus, countless documents, decrees, and letters Some of them, written by Hammurabi himself, survived for archaeologists to find. And being that most of the interactions between the two states seems to have been regarding affairs of war, most documents found discuss military affairs. Okay, now for some history. It is now the year 1792 BC. Sin-Muballit, the first ruler of Babylon to take the title King of Babylon, has abdicated his throne in favor of his young son. Hammurabi. Babylon at this point is a small but growing regional power. Hammurabi's predecessors had carefully and slowly built the power of their kingdom and expanded its territory. Most of Hammurabi's reign, especially the first half, was actually quite peaceful, during which he was more of the bureaucrat ruler known to most of us today than a great conqueror. He was obviously a gifted and energetic ruler And it was these peaceful years that would shape the character of the man that would become the foremost diplomat and politician of his time. He initiated many public works and completed those started by his father. He reorganized the economy, strengthened and increased the height of Babylon's walls, renovated the city's temples, and, of course, ordered the development of perhaps the most famous law code in history, the Code of Hammurabi. Hammurabi also seems to have personally taken part in as much of these affairs as possible, down to the slightest details. Or at least, it's how he wanted us to remember him. Now, I didn't expect it to happen this fast, but I've decided to prepare the first bonus episode in this podcast about the famous law code. In this bonus episode, I will discuss the law codes that predated Hammurabi's, the content of the code, and why it was, and still is, such a big deal. During this period, before it even began its political and military ascent, Babylon, under Hammurabi's sponsorship, was already becoming a center of culture and learning, gaining a degree of prominence and attracting the literate classes from all over Mesopotamia and beyond. Although not mentioned anywhere, Hammurabi must have also used these years of peace, reorganizing and drilling his army should the need to use it arise being aware of the competitive and hostile area in which his kingdom existed. We don't have a lot of information regarding the Babylonian army of that period. What we do know is that it made extensive use of the chariot, another tool used extensively by the Mesopotamians was the bow, kings were expected to lead their armies, and most importantly, war and its outcome were credited to the gods. We also mustn't forget that Hammurabi was a descendant of an audacious and ambitious dynasty, that after carving their own state from nothing, managed to expand and prosper, and it was now his turn to prove himself worthy of such lineage. Hammurabi and Babylon's rise seems to have occurred due to events out of their control or influence. The ever-expansionist Elamites waged war against Ishnunah and managed to conquer it giving the Elamites control over an area in Mesopotamia itself and access to the lucrative trade routes of that area. Naturally, they wanted more. To the northwest of Ishnunna, the kingdom of Upper Mesopotamia, founded by Shamshi Adad, had at this point dissolved with many smaller states taking its place. The Elamites sought to take advantage of this, sending multiple raiding parties and testing the ground for possible future subjugation. To the south, the Elamites now shared the Tigris River as a border with both Babylon and Larsa. In an attempt to avoid a direct conflict on two fronts, and hoping that the Deceit could do most of the dirty work for them, the Elamites sent to both Hammurabi and Rimsin of Larsa an offer of alliance and mutual support against the other, hoping to provoke a war between the two states, making them an easy target for them. It was this act, that would light the spark that would lead to about 15 years of almost continuous warfare and conquest. The rulers soon discovered the Elamites' duplicity and instead forged an alliance and a pact of mutual assistance against them. Hammurabi didn't stop there. It is here that Hammurabi's diplomatic savviness began to show when, taking advantage of the threat posed by Elam over all of Mesopotamia, Hammurabi managed to create a grand alliance with many of the states north of Babylon most notably with fellow Amorites, Zimri Lim of Mari, who was by now the most important and prosperous trade center in northern Mesopotamia, and seems to have sent the largest contingent, and with Hammurabi, yes, another Hammurabi, of Yamhad. The kingdom of Yamhad was a powerful state in what is today Syria, whose capital was the city of Halab, or modern Aleppo, also one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. Still, it was the Elamites who made the first move. They attacked and captured the border city of Upi beyond the Tigris, identified by some with the previously Sumerian city of Akshak, which you can see on the map I've posted on Facebook. Their next target was the city of Hiritu, close to the border with Larsa. They attacked and besieged the city. There, however, the Elamite momentum was halted when the city's defenders managed to destroy the siege equipment of the besiegers while the coalition forces attacked the besiegers' camp and sent raiding parties to the now undefended Elamite territory. All the meanwhile, the northern Mesopotamians fought back against the Elamite invaders, while uprisings by the people of Ishnana erupted against the Elamite occupation. The Elamites retreated and Hammurabi now went on the offensive, sending his own troops and troops lent to him by his allies to harass the retreating Elamites and burn and pillage their lands. The Elamite ruler soon asked for peace. During all these events, one ally was notably missing out on all the action, Rimsin of Larsa. Not only by not joining the Mesopotamian coalition, but he also seems to have taken advantage of the situation to raid Babylon's territory. Hammurabi was obviously enraged and now sought revenge, managing to convince most of his northern allies of the justice of his cause and even managing to bring new ones, he was able to keep the large coalition army, perhaps more than 40,000 men under his control, and in 1763 BC, he marched against Rimsin, Attacking across all the front, he took many cities including Isin, Nippur, and Uma, until he reached his destination, the city of Larsa itself. Fun fact, during this campaign, Hammurabi used a brilliant tactic in some of his sieges. Using the fact that he attacked from the north, or with the direction in which the Tigris and the Euphrates flowed, to either withhold water from the besieged cities, or to dam the water, and then releasing it so that it flooded his enemies. The Babylonian army besieged Larsa for more than six months, until it ran out of food and it was forced to surrender. Hammurabi ordered the walls of the city raised. But otherwise, no other destruction is recorded. Rimsin himself managed to escape, but he was soon captured and executed. Hammurabi took great care not to appear as a foreign conqueror, but rather a legitimate ruler anointed by the gods, sent to unify Mesopotamia. And within a year, we get the feeling that everything in the area was back to business as usual. Hammurabi now controlled the largest, wealthiest, and most powerful state in the region. Furthermore, he seems to have been able to keep the troops sent to him by the other states under his command. We have no records that indicate how he did it, but I guess that a combination of threats and generous bribes did the trick. This served a double purpose. The first is obviously putting more troops under his command, The second is that without these forces, revolts began to break out in the north, including in Zimri Lim's kingdom. Hammurabi now set his sight toward Ishnunah. Ishnunah was by now fractured and weak after years of war with the Elamites and its recent independence, and appears to have made an easy target to Hammurabi and his new army. It was quickly crushed and occupied, and Hammurabi's territory now stretched beyond the Tigris river. Finally, only the northern Mesopotamian states remained, foremost among them, Mari and his former ally, Zimri Lim. I say former because relations by this point had deteriorated between the two. Hammurabi's withholding of troops, duplicity, and mutual suspicion probably played a part, but it seems that sheer ambition and envy on Hammurabi's part were the main causes belli, and his later actions seems to confirm it. It is here that Hammurabi's farsightedness and opportunism show. Taking advantage of the unrest and discontent to which he himself had contributed two years in advance, in 1761 BC, he marched north. Perhaps a united north, such as during Shamshi-Adad's time, could have held him back. But in its current fractured state, most of northern Mesopotamia was quickly conquered and assimilated to the empire while the rest, including a small Akkadian-speaking kingdom, centered around a certain Ashur, were forced to pay tribute. Zimri Lim, the former ally who can be given a lot of credit in Hammurabi's rise, disappears around this time, and was presumably killed or executed. A stele of Hammurabi, in which he is given the title King of the Amorites, was found as far north as the Arbakir in modern-day Turkey. The only major cities to maintain their independence were Halab and Katna to the west. It is here that the envy part mentioned earlier kicks in. In all his conquests, even that of Larsa, no records or archaeological findings were found that indicate any large-scale violence or destruction. Mary, however, was a major exception. Hammurabi ordered the city sacked and Zimri Lim's great palace destroyed, as mentioned at the start. Why Mary was such an exception is not known. Perhaps it was revenge for Shamshi Adad, who was a great ally of Babylon and Hammurabi's father and whose dynasty was overthrown by Zimri lim Perhaps it was a personal insult by Zimri lim against Hammurabi. Some say that it was simply envy on Hammurabi's part of Mary itself. By destroying it, the only city to rival Babylon's wealth and status as a major trade center was gone. Two years later, Mary rose in revolt, Hammurabi ordered its complete destruction and the removal of its people to a new location. Mary, for almost a thousand years one of the most powerful and wealthiest cities in Mesopotamia, would never rise again. Hammurabi now controlled an empire that rivaled that of Sargon the Great himself. Over fifty years of age by now, and already seen by many as a living god. Hammurabi was not a young man by the standards of the day, but he had a career that any ruler could look back at with pride. He had crushed Babylon's enemies and expanded his minor kingdom to an empire. The Babylonian bureaucratic and economic structure which he had reformed was implemented across his empire, while Marduk, the patron of his city Babylon, was made the patron god of the whole empire and all people were now compelled to bow and worship him. Most importantly, his law code, the code of Hammurabi, was implemented across the empire, with edicts and steles sent to all major cities, with Hammurabi himself putting more of an emphasis on his role as a lawgiver, calling himself the king of justice, rather than a conqueror, something that you could say he was able to pull off beyond his expectations, as a couple of centuries later, his military accomplishments were de-emphasized while his role as a lawgiver became the focal point of his legacy. Like Sargon the Great, for later Mesopotamians, Hammurabi was still looked upon and remembered as the ideal ruler, and there were many kings who claimed him as an ancestor centuries after his death and the fall of his empire. It is a testament to his rule that, unlike Sargon and the Akkadians, Hammurabi did not have to face major uprisings and rebellions against his rule, a notable exception being Mary, of course. Hammurabi died around 1750 BC. His son, Samsu Iluna, who seems to have already been his co-ruler during his last years, succeeded him. And for many years, he was able to hold together the empire of his father. Eventually, however, the usual Mesopotamian rebellions in various cities in both north and south erupted and although Samsu Iluna fought back vigorously, many of the empire's vassals and cities subdued by his father were able to break away from the empire. He was, however, able to keep many others, and the empire survived for more than 150 years after the death of Hammurabi. In my opinion, Hammurabi's greatest legacy was Babylon itself. Already the largest and wealthiest city in the world during his reign, Babylon was from now on not just the undisputed capital of the region, it also usurped the position of the most holy city in Mesopotamia from Nippur. For centuries to come, Babylon would be synonymous with wealth and greatness, and would either be the capital of an empire or a must be target for any empire, including the Persians and Alexander himself, who took it as his capital. More importantly, there was no Sumer anymore. From now on, until the rise of the Caliphate, more than 22 centuries later, the whole of southern Mesopotamia came to be known as Babylon. Thank you all for listening to The Conqueror's Podcast. If you like the podcast, don't forget to rate it and press the subscribe button. Your reviews and comments are most welcome. You can leave them on the podcast's Facebook page called The Conqueror's Podcast, a YouTube channel with the same name, or on iTunes or any platforms you guys use to listen. You can also contact me directly at theconquerorspodcast at gmail.com. As I mentioned earlier, our next episode will be a bonus episode in which I will discuss throughoutly the code of Hammurabi. In two weeks, I will release the next background episode which will discuss a whole new civilization that was as old as the Mesopotamian civilization's and with whom it interacted, influenced, and was influenced by for centuries, Ancient Egypt, and specifically, the New Kingdom, otherwise known as the Egyptian Empire. Until our next time,